0: Welcome to the Women with Fire podcast. I am Michelle Gifford. I am Sarah Allred. God is calling women around the world to stand up and make a difference. We call this your quest. God needs you. Learn from other women who are navigating their own quests. And through this podcast, light that fire as you embark upon your own. Let's do this. Hey you, and welcome back to the Women With Fire podcast. This is Sarah Allred. I get to be your host today. I'm so excited, and I've already admitted to our guest I'm a little bit starstruck, (laughs) and I've been doing some serious research and serious re-binging on the podcast that I have heard her on. I am here to introduce Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, if you don't know Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, you really, really, really need to. And I love her because of her boldness and her unapologetic nature of just helping us appreciate being human and loving the human experience. And also, really, really honoring her experience as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints and the unique challenges that we face as women within this incredible theology that we have been given so a couple of stats about her so that you can kind of connect with her before we get started so she is an lds relationship and sexuality coach as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of illinois she has a phd in counseling psychology and in addition to her dissertation research on lds women's sexuality and relationship to desire she's taught college level human sexuality courses big stuff listeners, (laughs) holy smokes. (laughs) And before I dive into some of the other things that you have done, I think you have single-handedly broken down some massive barriers for LDS women and sexuality. Have you felt that as part of your calling?
1: I definitely have felt that as it's something I don't maybe talk about a lot, but I do feel called to the work I do. I mean, it's, it's just kind of always been in my heart, always been something I was thinking about even as an adolescent. I was somebody who thought I shouldn't get a PhD because I felt like that was almost counter to being a good woman, being a good Mormon woman, having a family. And I just felt kind of at each decision point like I was doing the right thing. So, anyway, but it's, it's definitely felt uh, like a very valuable experience and just something I feel really a great sense of privilege for being able to speak to and help a lot of, of women in the church. Do you feel like
0: you've had specific experiences, specifically with the Lord, that have said, keep going and I'm behind
1: you on this? Um, I would say that it's always felt clear to me. That uh God is at peace with where I am. I don't mean to say that I never make mistakes or that I don't <laughs> obviously I'm sure. you know, we're all human and we're all imperfect, but I've definitely felt a sense of uh, peace and clarity about what I'm offering. So and I, it's also by their fruits you shall know them like meaning I can see often how it impacts people's lives and marriages, how people become stronger clearer, more comfortable within themselves, more at peace with their sense of who they are. And those are, that's very important. It really does demonstrate to me that there are true principles, right? True ideas. Ooh, I love that.
0: Yeah. That's a very clear idea that I can take home and say, oh yes, by your fruits, he shall know them, and the Mm. things that you're seeing. So tell me, what was what was there a moment or a journey of bravery that gave you the guts to do this
1: oh that's such a good question i
0: Did would say you're technically one of the most taboo subjects yeah
1: no question within the church <laughs> where
0: where's your bravery coming i know from? and
1: i you know i said to my husband before like i like people to like me really i mean I, that's almost a problem for me i like people to like me so I'm like, if I want people to like me, I shouldn't be talking about sexuality to Mormons, okay? <laughs> Get people distressed, right? And uh, should have talked about communication techniques and left it at that. But, but, uh, but I, I would say that, you know, when I was a young person, I always grappled honestly with questions. Like I felt very clear that God was there, loved me, knew me. I felt very much that the principles that I was learning at church were true and yet I really struggled with some teachings and I felt guilty for struggling with them, like women's role. And what I experienced is sometimes women taking a sort of background suppressed position. And I was earnestly grappling with those questions. And uh, it wasn't in the focus of sexuality at that point in my life but they troubled me i i you know i learned about polygamy and i felt like i know god loves me but does god love me a little bit less than men and these were it's just how it felt to me and so you know in an effort to really solidify a testimony and clarity i went on a mission as as kind of an act of sacrifice to really have a testimony to really kind of get clearer on some things and I won't tell the whole story because it's a little too long, but towards the end of my mission, you know, I really obeyed all the rules. I, I did everything kind of really looking for this. And towards the end of my mission, I, I went into a bit of a crisis because a friend who was leaving the church and had sent me a letter and I really pressured in my relationship with God at that point, like I really needed to know. And uh, so I fasted for several days. I, you know, really was that kind of archetypal wrestling. (laughs) And on the fourth day, I remember getting what I knew was my answer, which was that there are many false traditions, even in my church, and it's your job to discern and to stand up for what you know is right and to live by what you know is right. And it's like I knew that was my answer, I knew it was right, that I needed to, that it wasn't just going to be handed to me, like all this is, you don't need to worry, here it all is, it was a message of it's right for you to struggle with some of these questions, and to stand up for what you honestly believe is right, and I actually was afraid of that answer, I have to be honest, it wasn't an answer that gave me a lot of comfort, because I felt like it was going to make people think I wasn't being good or doing my job or just deferring to everything I'd been taught. And so it's, I kind of put it away for a few years and then sort of reapproached God in my relationship again around that, like, and sort of got the answer. I thought we'd been over this. (laughs) And it's kind of at that point that I had a little more courage in allowing myself to, I was doing a women's studies minor at BYU. I was grappling with a lot of these questions, but now I was starting my master's degree and I just allowed myself more to stop forcing everything into a box and allowing myself to honestly grapple with what felt right and loving and godly and what didn't and allow myself to challenge some things. And then slowly I I moved into the sexuality aspect. That's when I was looking for a dissertation, topic. And I had been asked as a Mormon woman who was still single to teach two undergraduate courses. One was drugs and alcohol and the other was human sexuality. But <laughs> it was so funny that I, Jackpot.
0: I'm like, I can't Jackpot. believe,
1: <laughs> but I ended up uh, agreeing to teach the human sexuality course. And so that's, you know, I was teaching Catholic men and women because I was at Boston College. And so I was really starting it sounds to Sounds like
0: the start of a joke. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yes exactly. It was funny, so you know i'm I'm talking to these having these men and women write essays, college students write essays about their experience growing up Catholic and their struggles with desire and anxiety about sexuality and so on and it it made me really start thinking about maybe I should really look at Mormon women's experiences because we don't have a double standard so explicitly in our theology as there is in. Catholic theology, uh, or at least culture, around men and women and sexuality. And yet, I knew that there seemed to be, at least among my friends, a lot of anxiety about sexuality and desire. And so that's what led me to my dissertation research, where I looked at Mormon women, members of the church who'd grown up in the church, who were now married, and talked to them about their premarital experiences of their emerging sexuality and how they transitioned into marriage and looked at the women who basically transitioned well and happily and those who did not and sort of what were the differences in in these two groups of women. And it was very fascinating research, which I absolutely loved. And, And so that sort of thrust me into the you know, to finding ways to help more members of the church or men and women, really. I mean, I've focused a lot on women, but this has been tough for a lot of men as well, to find a kind of place of integrity and peace with their sexuality. Women often suppress and men can be more indulgent, if that's the right word, or kind of split off in some ways from their sexuality, maybe more indulgent, but not necessarily at peace. And you know, helping men and women in the church to become more integrated with their sexuality and their values and be more able to express it in a godly way, in a way that's in line with their development and their quest to become more like our parents in heaven. Incredible. And you, you believe this
0: experience as a missionary, this was an undeniable experience. Oh yeah, for For me it was for sure and i do perceive you as someone who is unapologetic on what you're talking about and mm-hmm. knowing you are helping just tens of thousands yeah. if not hundreds of thousands of people be introduced yeah. to seemingly new ideas mm-hmm. um, regarding this with our theology have there been moments of total loneliness
1: in this in teaching about this i uh it's a very good question i think that there have been moments like that. I have to say that I feel really grateful for my husband because I found someone. I didn't marry John until I was 29 years old, and I met him in my singles ward in, uh, in Boston where I was doing my graduate work, and he's just a different kind of guy than a lot of the other men I had dated in that he really already himself had thought about a lot of these things and i could step into meaningful conversations with him sort of right away around some of the things i was grappling with and he and i don't you know agree on everything or you know we don't sure. certainly have different ways of approaching things or thinking about things but i do feel understood and known by him and and that's been tremendously helpful in the work that i do because it does really help to have a person who gets you most of the time and who backs you up in a sense. Uh, And that's been tremendously helpful. So that's not to say, I don't want to just like gloss it and say like I always have backup and I'm always, feel I never feel alone. (laughs) or I don't mean that, (laughs) but you know, but I, I do truly feel grateful for his support and his understanding of me.
0: Oh, I love this. And the thing I love is already just in our first 10 minutes of talking, so many of our listeners, as they have submitted questions and have wanted to talk to you, which is why I feel super spoiled, they are experiencing feelings you have felt. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I love that you will be so honest about grappling yeah. with, I'm a woman in the church and I don't know where I fit, yeah. just don't right. know where I fit. And so- right. I would love, I loved one of the concepts that was brought up from one of our listeners on how do you resonate the proclamation to the family Mm -hmm. with the role of women versus traditional gender roles? Mm -hmm. Where does this lie? Especially for women. Um, We have many women who are questing or trying to quest and do feel like their own self-care and their own passions. have to be set aside Mm -hmm. in the name of children and, and husband's jobs. You know, you've done this. Sure. What are your thoughts? How do you reconcile that in your mind?
1: So the first way that I reconcile it is that revelation is always given within a context. It's always given within a cultural context and to people with limited views of godliness, both through people with limited views and to people with limited views of godliness. I mean, I take very seriously the idea that, and this was in the missionary discussions when I was teaching them. I don't know if they still are in there, but in this language, but that part of the purpose of coming to this earth is to gain a body, but to also come to know the difference between right and wrong, right? Which is very much in the language of a process, you we know, you'd know think that. if that's just so simple, we'd have it down in primary, right? But it's a process of discerning what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what's godly, what is not of God. And then also, and I'm, I don't even know, I know this was an idea that Joseph Smith taught, but I'm trying to think where else we hear this idea. But coming to know who God is is also a long process and not one that I think we, any of us come to fully understand because to come to know God is to become, is to be godly. And none of us have reached that level. So, you know, as I said in Sunday school, you know, several months ago, we're all worshiping a false god. Okay, that is, we're all carrying a limited idea in our minds about who our parents in heaven are. And they're often very much shaped by our cultural experiences of male and female, of our mother and father. Sometimes with clients, I'll have them write out a dialogue with God, meaning they'll write their questions and then they'll write what the god in their mind or view would say in response and some people's view of god is very cruel right and it's very often like the father that they had and they've projected their own limited view onto god right and and this is very normal i'm not you know saying these are bad people by any stretch this is a very typical thing but the reason i'm saying that is because we are very much a group in process We want the idea that we've gotten all the answers and it's all right here for us. And all we need to do is obey sufficiently and all will be well. But I think that's the slothful servant idea. Oh, wow. I see it that to be a good member of the church is to be striving for integrity more than compliance. Now, compliance helps us because it's, a, it's the first law of heaven obedience. It, it helps us to not go off the rails. It's the guard posts, okay? And so there's value in that to containing your behavior enough that there's room to be protected from some of the negative consequences, right? But it's the first law, and a lot of times we think it is the law, which is more like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, rather than within a context grappling honestly with what it means to love who God is what where is our integrity what do we really believe is right and creating goodness that that takes more creativity on our part it takes more courage on our part it takes wrestling more in our own relationship with God not just sort of deferring to what others tell us you know I I Again, I liked that idea. I wanted to just do what other people said because then I would be a good girl. I mean, I people would not question my legitimacy. Sure. But I think God was saying that's not good enough. Your job is to grapple and wrestle with these things and to assert what you believe is right. And I did feel God was giving me a clear message. That's what I expect. But I also had the sense that it wasn't just me you know that that all of us really need to grapple honestly with what's true because we are responsible for the choices we make i think sometimes we use the idea of obedience to sort of make somebody else responsible for our life choices right like if i just obey i will get someone else i'll get the reward or i'll get the safety of that and right there there often is safety in a sense in in making thoughtful choices are going along even with what someone else has told us because they've gone before us. They're wiser than we are. They know more than we do, but it's not enough to just stop there. You have to, you know, because the choices we make impact our lives and our development and our happiness and our children. And so we have to be thoughtful consumers in a sense of the ideas that we're offered and the choices that we make. And I think that's a part of godliness. You know, we're not taught, and this is another amazing part of our theology, that we're taught that we're in this progression to become gods ourselves. And gods are actors, creators. You know, they have achieved wisdom, not just compliance. Right? And to create wisdom, one must be an actor in a complex world my mind is blown
0: (laughs) my mind is blown that they're not just compliant right you guys our listeners are so lucky right (laughs) my mind is blown one of the things i admire so deeply about you is that you do consider our theology to be very unique and amazing yes Really amazing, clearly, because you are an active member of the Church of Christ Latter day Saints. And one of the things you said in a recent podcast with Jody Moore um, is you said, and I'm going to quote it exactly. I went back and made sure I. I did this. You said um, the theology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints is amazing because, quote, we believe the body is necessary for spiritual enlightenment. The body is critical for becoming more godlike. We believe in parents in heaven who are embodied beings. So this impacted me so much. Again, another mind blown moment mm-hmm. and has let me think a lot about what elements of Latter-day Saint theology do you feel we may be missing the mark on Mm -hmm. that is just beautiful and amazing and specifically for women and Mm -hmm. sexuality and marriage?
1: Well, two, two come to mind. One is in reference to what you're saying, which is I think, and this is so much of the work I do, and I talk a lot about this in a course, an online course that I do called The Art of Desire, which is really looking at the way we've misunderstood the body and sexuality and culturally see i make a big distinction between the cultural interpretation that's often linked very much to where we are developmentally as a group okay and the theology itself because i think the theology is really rich and profound but It's a little bit like Joseph Smith said and Elder Uchtdorf have said, which is that we often think we get something and then we kind of slam down the doors and don't sort of stay open to seeing it in a deeper, richer way. Right. And so I think the body and sexuality is absolutely a way we've kind of inherited other Christian traditions around this, which is to see the body as an impediment to goodness, the body as a threat to goodness, sexuality, pleasure is we see it as almost inherently a threat, unless you're married and it's all under deep control, you know, that's often what we think. And we're, we're quite terrified of our sexuality and we teach our children to be quite terrified. And uh, I think this is the wrong way to think about the body and to think about sexuality. I think that, I don't think of sexuality in the body as good or bad inherently. I think of them as being, depending on how we are, well, I guess I would say I think of the body as good inherently, but I would say sexuality isn't good or bad specifically. It's how we're in relationship to our sexuality that determines whether or not it's good or bad. What are we in fact creating with our sexuality? Our sexuality is a given. We're born sexual beings. We have no choice on that matter, okay? Right. And our sexual development, of course, is very nascent and early when we're first born but it's still present we the sensuality of our bodies the Capacity for pleasure is all in place even as babies and so it's not about whether or not We see it culturally as Satan's pathway to taking us down So when our kids are coming of age or adolescent we get very Often shaming and anxious about their emerging curiosity their emerging sexuality And we do them a deep disservice because nothing's going wrong that they're sexually curious. It's going and right. It's going right. It's absolutely going right. If something if they weren't curious, if they had no feelings, that would be more concerning because then there would be the question of whether or not they would be able to be in an intimate marriage and really love and be loved in this way. So nothing's going wrong and when we tell our kids that it is, the fact that they're curious about images that they see or curious about what people are talking about or that they like the lyrics of a song because it you know it speaks to some part of their growing sexuality, that's good, okay? Like, th- that's, that means they're human and that they're moving towards adulthood. So we don't want to shame it. What we do wanna do, I think, is, is to th- talk to our kids about how we relate to our sexuality determines what impact it has on us and others, determines whether or not it's a blessing in our life or not. Right. It's like you can think about it in the frame of food, that the sensuality and pleasure of food and how we're in relationship to food can be a wonderful part of our lives, but it can also be a destructive part of our lives. And it's destructive when we go either into too repressive, like we don't let ourselves eat or enjoy food or enjoy the pleasure of the and the beauty that's in the food that we eat, or we go excessive and we're eating or consuming food in a way that undermines our health, undermines our well-being, undermines our psychological peace. That's always it's in moderation. Same with our sexuality. We can we can do ungodliness with our sexuality by either being too repressed. Too shaming of our sexuality, too afraid of it, which we seldom think of as ungodly. I think we think of that as like closer to God, right? right? And the indulgent side. But I think, especially if you're somebody who wants to partner and be married, if you've shut all of your sexuality down, and many women have and men have done this as an act of righteousness, you have really handicapped your ability to create an intimate marriage and i don't just mean sexually intimate i just mean even emotionally intimate because a whole part of yourself you are terrified of and how are you going to show up and let someone know you and know them when you think this is just one step away from taking you down a spiral
0: this right? is this is fascinating and there is not a listener here that doesn't want a more intimate relationship in their marriage right doesn't want to raise their kids right in in terms right. of sexuality and why did it start this way like why is it this way
1: why are why do we teach sort of false ideas about sexuality and so on is that what you yes mean? well i think to be honest especially before uh birth control in lots of societies not just within our faith people have been quite terrified of sexuality because if a child or I mean teenager or adult has sex they're gonna have a baby and then that society has to come up with a way to care for that baby and you know there's big implications for being sexual and so yes you can see in a society that wants to control the behavior of its members why you're gonna use scare tactics. meaning it's a natural man response to want to use scare tactics <laughs> okay. yes and, right. and that's right. where like, we started like, right exactly so it's not shocking that that's how we've sometimes responded to it. The second thing I would say is when it comes to being in relationship, sexuality is the hardest thing to integrate. I think it's especially true for women that it's highly linked to our psyche and our sense of self. And so I think it's harder to develop the maturity to really be at peace with your body and your sexual sense of self. And so I think many of us don't develop that, whether or not we're religious. And so I think because it's so linked to something kind of profound in us, and sexuality, to be honest, is a little bit weird, okay? I mean, do you know what I mean? (laughs) When you think about the the reality of sex, it's odd, you know? It's not like the normal things we do in day-to-day life. This
0: is going to be your quotable for Instagram.
1: (laughs) We're ready. We've got the quote. (laughs) Nice and five says sexuality is weird. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, but so because of all that, I think often our own immaturity around it and by immaturity, I'm not trying to be insulting, but saying our own limited development around it means we kind of transmit that to our children. We, we transmit our anxiety to them kind of instinctively. And the more at peace we are, the more our kids can even feel that. And in some ways, Borrow that piece with their bodies, even without us having to articulate all of it. Do you see what I mean? Like kids will track their parents very much about how the parents feel about sexuality. And it will shape kids' minds more than we realize instead of just the talk instead happens. of just the talking exactly
0: so you and you're not making this up because you you are raising kids you have teenagers if i'm yes that's
1: right i have teenagers yes. so this is
0: real people yes. this is like she's <laughs> living this so with that in mind like i struggle with thinking how do my kids view my views of my yeah. sexuality like
1: like what does that look like in a house well i mean it's a good question it's hard to articulate how it looks, but I think for example, and probably people have listened to me before, I've I've used this example probably too many times now, but like I had a friend who was so anxious about her children becoming porn addicts because it had been a problem in her family and so on, that when they were three and five years old, she would like throw herself in front of the magazines at the checkout stand and just just so anxious about nudity or sexuality. And this is just a kind of, easy example of showing how her kids map her they don't know exactly what she's covering up but they see mom is super anxious she's super anxious about these images and what it does is drive both fear and curiosity together around sexuality Mm -hmm. which is a is a particularly bad mix okay because the curiosity will exist regardless absolutely and now the curiosity has become supercharged and now it's like, I really want to know what's behind my mom, but I'm bad for wanting to know what's behind my mom. Where that's if mom's right, more part. like, oh yeah, people will take pictures of themselves on magazines to make money and, and just mom's more neutral about it. Kids can map that too. They can be like, oh, that's interesting. You know, they can recognize that's kind of interesting that people do that and it's, in, but they're, it's not supercharged. They're more in a position to actually take it in and to make a meaning of it that doesn't run their lives. When it gets supercharged, the curiosity and the sense of guilt and shame starts to become the driver rather than the person, him or herself. And so, you know, but like a mother who's, you can tell she's comfortable with her body. She doesn't say negative things about it. She likes to dress up and feel attractive, right. Without like, without being like, you know, Yes, not sexualizing herself, but she's comfortable with her desirability and her attractiveness. And she likes dad and dad likes her and they kiss each other and like it, you know, and a child can track that. Does mom like to be close to dad and vice versa? That's very trackable. You know, like many of my clients have talked about who have suppressed sexual desire will say that they remember their mother standing in the kitchen, the father coming up and kissing the back of her neck and the mother batting him away. You know, oh. while she's working, right? Th- that kind of imagery that sort of the good woman doesn't have time for that stuff, that kind of idea. Oh, that's and that's so an idea you just inherit and internalize without even knowing how you got it. I'm fascinated. I am so fascinated by this. When you talk
0: specifically about the contrast of the mom with the magazine. Mm-hmm. Two different ways to kind of approach it. With the second approach, seemingly maybe the more correct approach, where we're not trying to supercharge curiosity and fear together, you still want to somehow communicate that this is against our value system. Mm-hmm. So how do you yeah. stay chill and neutral and also say, please
1: don't do that though, <laughs> please stop. I would never even say please don't do that because that's the idea of you should for me not do these things. Uh, that's, okay. in my view, not the right view. It's not the right reason that a child wouldn't do something. What you do want to say is, you know, what you do with your sexuality matters. And when you look around in movies and magazines and at school, you're gonna see a range of choices. And people can do things from that are loving and kind and good, both through sexual restraint and sexual comfort. You know, depending on the context, Mm -hmm. meaning sexual restraint when it's not appropriate to be sexual with someone or sexual comfort and ease when it is appropriate to, to be sexual, like in your marriage, whatever. But also, and so people can look at how you can talk to kids, especially as young adolescents and before, about how people are relating to sexuality and what impact it's actually having on their lives and their relationships. So, you know, I have an online course of how to talk to your LDS kids about sex. And so I I certainly talk parents through the different stages and what's the goals of the parent at each stage. And, you know, in the early stages, it's about just demonstrating and showing them the comfort of their bodies and being at peace with their sensuality and knowing that you're at peace with their bodies. And then around age eight or so, giving them the mechanics of sexuality. But then this eight to twelve are kind of the golden years of offering them values around sexuality and the value of of um, loyalty and commitment and expressing the deepest forms of sexuality in a context of a loving, committed uh, marriage. And you can—that's the time when your kids are going to be the most open to receiving your values, especially if they're not fear driven and do it for me kind of stuff, especially when it's like, do it for you because you will be happier. You will create more goodness in your life through it. And then when they really have inherited your understanding of what constitutes a healthy and loving relationship to one's sexuality you can also talk to them about the challenges that will come and how do you relate to you know that you are really attracted to your 16 year old girlfriend or you're really and the more you can help kids make commitments to themselves about how they want to be in relationship to this divine power and these feelings that will certainly come and all that it's not fear driven it's not doing it to keep other people happy with them that's a very dangerous way to do it really because, and girls do this especially because then you want your boyfriend to be happy with you, right? When it's not driven from within yourself, and I found this very much in my dissertation research, the women who had the easiest time living the law of chastity had made a commitment to themselves and to God about how they were going to be in relationship to their sexuality. And paradoxically, they, they transitioned most comfortably into marriage because they saw it as their own decision. They saw it as, I am doing this for me, not for some future man to like me, not to be pure for him, but about how I am in relationship to this body that God gave me, this awesome sexuality that I get to have. And I want to be chaste until I'm in a committed marriage when it will be fully okay to express it. And then they really believed it was fully okay. So it was not out of fear and shame that they were inhibiting. It was out of a decision about what kind of, relationship and in what context they wanted to express their sexuality. The people who did relatively badly were much more fear-based. They were much more uh, concerned about what others would think, what their bishop would think, what their boyfriend would think, what God would think, but not in a good way, like more of this punishing God. And, And so then they would be in this struggle internally. They're getting pressured by their boyfriend, for example, And they're in this struggle between wanting him to be happy with them versus wanting the bishop to be happy with them, but not asking themselves, what do I need to be happy with me around this? Meaning, who am I? What are my values? What do I believe? What do I, and being true to themselves. And that's extremely important for people to be at peace and to have peace of mind. And so the more you can prepare your children to, understand what your values are understand what lies ahead of them in a sense and equip them with the ability to make choices in line with their values that's where people really get their strength there's true strength in integrity and teaching children an integrity frame is really important it's the one that really always wins compliance is much weaker
0: and this is so amazing because this whole idea of integrity the integrity framework goes into the first question I asked you about gender roles and the proclamation. I mean, it is yes, full circle and interesting to even hear you almost vocalize that the approach of forcing it
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it yes. is the more is the riskier approach.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. And I don't even think I fully answered that question because I started with the idea of You know that everything's given in within a context, and so I see us as a group in evolution. And you know the way of understanding male and female roles in the '50s is culturally is very different than the way it is today. Like we are very much a society that is evolving into or shifting, at least in many ways. And so, what does it mean to be a woman who lives? I mean, this is how to say it. We are really being forced to grapple with what does it mean to be good as a woman in day, every day in this complex world in shifting cultural and social realities with children who are experiencing the world differently than we did when we were growing up. I mean, it would be one thing if we were in ancient Egypt that like didn't change for like whatever it was, 4,000 <laughs> yeah. 4, years, I can't remember, but you, you know, it was, it was just all kind of the same, you know? <laughs> and uh, now things are changing so rapidly that it's quite difficult, but it makes the questions all the more important to grapple with earnestly. I personally think the way we have enculturated men and women is in this idea that men are the doers, that men work and women love. And there's a lot of truth in that, right? But the thing is, both genders want both things, right? I mean, and if I had a ton of time, I could say more about how I see that to be true. But I think, you know, one of the things that, this is quoting um, um, a theorist and psychologist, David Schnarch. she talks about the idea that we all want two things, Uh, We all want to belong to ourselves, and we all want to belong to to someone else. That is, we want to belong to the people that matter to us, to our communities, to our families, to our marriages. We want to know we matter and we belong. And we also, though, and we, I think, often lose this with women – we give it, make it a given with men, but we want to belong to ourselves. We want to belong to our own development, our own passions, our own talents and gifts. And I think we have taught women, falsely in my opinion, that it's an act of goodness to suppress your own development. And I think that's counter to our theology because we believe in a theology of eternal progression. And parenting and motherhood is a part of that progression. I'm not in any way suggesting it's not, but it isn't the only part of what it means to be a woman. And often when we talk about being a divine woman or our divine roles, we mean mother, rather than to be a creative, loving woman who exercises her gifts for the benefit of her own development and the benefit of those she loves. And what does it mean today in any given context? my own life I had finished my PhD I'd actually been offered a job at a university to be a professor my professors that I was leaving I was finishing my degree thought I was crazy to turn that job down but I really did want at that point to not work I wanted to be home because I had a child who had just been diagnosed with special needs I just had a second child I wanted to be home it's what I chose what I desired and it was hard. It was way harder than my husband was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I had a special needs child, a baby. I mean, some of the hardest moments of my life was trying to get groceries, and I'm not exaggerating oh. at all. <laughs> you needed
0: Walmart grocery pickup.
1: <laughs> so they didn't have it back then, I think. So, you know, <laughs> so anyway, but I think that I chose in line with what I believed was right at that point and was home because the it was the most right thing for me. It wasn't even like God thinks I should do it therefore I'm going to do it. It's that I wanted to do it. I wanted to be home because I didn't want to turn it over or entrust someone else with it. And that in a certain point when my kids got to be a certain age, then I wanted to start expressing my other gifts in the world and, and engaging my capacities in other forms, not just always being home. For me, this felt important and right and I could feel when, this, when it was shifting. And it was no longer right for me to just be home knee deep in kids stuff. And, and I think that, how to say it, there, we're always in this tension between belonging to others and belonging to ourselves. And sometimes we'll be imbalanced in it, like the fulcrum will be different based on the needs. Sometimes you're knee deep in little kids and there is a certain suppression of self that's necessary for those kids to get what they need. But what we often do culturally is we lionize that so much that we expect women to almost stay stuck in that self-suppression and to make their lives revolve around other people and that somehow it's an indulgence when they develop themselves. And I and think one greedy, of the most, selfish, yes. Yes. And this I talk about a lot in my Art of Desire class because I really think it's wrong I think the greatest gift you can give your children is it allows them to go and live their own lives without taking care of you when they can see that mom is thriving, right? Mom doesn't just need me to reinforce her life and legitimize her life because my mom is finding her own strength and and my mom has her own capacities and she is a whole self. And I think a lot of times we've taught women that selfish and I actually think we will be selfish if we don't do that because when your sense of self is so wrapped around your kids and what they're choosing and what they're doing and so on, you will be very controlling in some form or another of those kids because your sense of self is so wrapped around them. It will be very hard to allow them to be fully free.
0: And now a short break for a word about our sponsor. Look, if you have kids, listen up. Trying to find ways to balance all of life's expectations and still find time to teach our kids in the home is wicked tough. I get it, I've got four kids of my own. Well, I have found a service to make this easy for you. It's a game changer, people. Come Follow Me F-H-E will take out all of the guesswork when implementing home-centered teaching with the Come Follow Me program. So Christians and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can have weekly access to lesson bundles that align exactly with the New Testament study for this year. The lessons are geared towards primary age kids and aim to make gospel learning purposeful, engaging, and dare I say, joyful and fun in your home. So serious, it is five bucks a month, people. Five bucks a month for all of this plan for you. Follow Come Follow Me FHE on Instagram at Come Follow Me FHE to catch weekly coaching on the materials. So just for us Women With Fire listeners, woo! We are offering you a free month to come follow me FHE use code women with fire and it's good through the end of October, 2019. All right, back to the podcast. Do you please tell me this is a common issue with women that they feel
1: stuck. It's very common. Uh, especially among the population I work with, which is members of the church, women in the church. So I think, you know, it's very common. I think in part because of the messaging that we've gotten around this, right? Rather than there's a time and a season. And, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I knew I wanted to do private practice was because I was thinking about this time and season thing, which is it would allow me, we actually bought a small house and then we added on to it. So I would have a place where I could be my office and knowing that I wanted it to be flexible enough where I could work a little and be home a little, you know, like I could do both things and, and work and integrate this into my life as the kids got older and so on. And I do think in our culture and society at large, it's very hard for people that to do both things i mean it used to be when we were in more agrarian societies you're just out there and your kids are around you and you're all picking you know things out of the the garden (laughs) right (laughs) so it was more like the family and work life was all together with the industrial revolution and particularly with women being home then it's been much more difficult to bridge those two worlds of love and work and many women are caught in that struggle of either I'm home and I feel like I'm not developing any part of myself or I'm out working and I feel like I'm neglecting something so fundamental to me, which is being a good mother. And they're absolutely right. This is, I mean, I feel quite privileged that I have, you know, I was listening to some research on this that they were talking about the women that were the happiest had their own businesses or had private practices because it allowed them the flexibility, right? They had something they could have a lot of flexibility around. They could do things that were important to them, develop aspects of themselves, but also be meaningfully involved in parenting. And I think our society is not set up in a way that makes that easy. I think we are making progress, but it's still not enough. And so oftentimes women do feel really stuck around this because of the binary nature of it. This
0: is fantastic. And I I didn't realize that this concept was taught, you know, the need to work and love and those opposites and everything like that. Um, I didn't realize that that was taught in your Art of Desire class, Mm -hmm. um, which you are teaching in Salt Lake City. So Mm -hmm. listeners fill those seats for sure. I'm going to actually try and be there because it works. But one of the things I want to ask you about that is what is the impact um, you've talked about the impact of, of mom, not having purpose on children. Yes. And what that can do in a family yes. dynamic. What happens within a
1: marriage? Oh yeah. that's an excellent. Question. Have purpose? And within the woman herself. I mean, yeah. I mean so much a part of intimacy. It's interesting because I think we often think about intimacy as looking for reinforcement from our partner. And what I mean by that is we think of, Intimacy is kind of validating conversations where you feel adored, loved, valued by your spouse, and there's nothing wrong with having any of those experiences. But intimacy, what intimacy really is, is I want to be known and know you. And really, most of us do not want that. (laughs) That is to say, we question whether or not who we are is sufficient enough to really let somebody know us profoundly. Every day. Right. (laughs) Most of us are trying to manage how much we let somebody know us, and our sexuality is often a way of keeping that contact to a minimum. And by not engaging our sexuality or engaging in a particular way, so you know, intimacy is not for the faint of heart. And in order to be capable of intimacy, you really do have to be able, on some level, to handle your sense of self on your own terms. You have to be at peace with who you are. To, be, to tolerate letting somebody in on it, to let somebody else really know you and see you. And so I think sometimes in the way we've done traditional arrangements uh, in marriage or the way that we, you know, we, sometimes I work with a lot of people where one person is kind of needy and the other person needs to be needed. And many people partner in these kind of one up, one down frames. And those will always be intimacy avoidant marriages because they're more in the frame of needing than they are of knowing. And in the New Testament, we talk about the divinity of knowing and being known, but that's godly. That's much harder. That takes more courage. And so when you haven't developed a sense of yourself other than how you're in relationship to others. And I know I'm speaking very categorically because I don't, you know, I'm saying it, but, but when that's been the primary way of thinking about who you are is who you are to everybody else, it's very hard to tolerate any intimacy because you don't feel you have a self to share. And many of my clients don't have a sexual self to share. They haven't developed this part of themselves enough to have something to share meaningfully in their marriage. And so they're accommodating their spouse perhaps, but they're not really showing up as a self often. Because yeah. they feel they have nothing to offer. Like, yes, they have nothing to share. There's nothing there they feel. And I think sometimes when we have done what many of us have been taught to do, which is be in the self-sacrificing mode and serve others. And when you feel bad, just serve a little more and that kind of idea. I think that. While there's truth in some of those ideas, they're often distorted into this frame of, you know, just self-abnegation is the is the way. And when we self-abnegate chronically, uh, we undermine our ability of ever feeling good about ourselves and being at peace with ourselves. And real relationships, I should say, really equal relationships, co-equal relationships, have a balance of that sacrificing between the couple. You know, when I go do a workshop, my family sacrifices for me, right? And that's okay? Oh, it's 100% okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's more than okay. It's good for everybody. I mean, obviously, if I was constantly doing everything, you know, neglecting, then it's not good. But sometimes we all sacrifice for my husband's endeavors or my son's endeavors or my daughter's. You know, it's like that the family is flexible enough to think about how does everybody thrive in this system. And sometimes that means some give more than others. And sometimes one takes more, if that's the right word, or receives more. And But there's flexibility. It's family systems that are dysfunctional, it's always going in one direction. It always has there's, you know, everybody defers to dad or to mom. And so when you're really partnered in an intimate marriage, it, you, you make decisions so that two people thrive, so that the system thrives, not just one.
0: And the motivation behind, we, we, we clearly, I've told you about this, we tell our followers all the time, um, we encourage them to quest to find Mm -hmm. purpose, to find identity. Mm -hmm. And the the most important thing they can do is just start, just start in some form.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And if any of these listeners need a motivation, Dr. Finlayson Fife just gave it to you that by starting it, it's going to improve your family dynamic. It's Mm -hmm. going to improve your sense of self. It's going to improve your intimacy, both emotionally and sexually. I mean, Mm -hmm. this could be a real core improvement for our listeners um, who really desire to expand themselves.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I talk about in my workshop is basically I ask women to think about what do they do on a regular basis? What do they love to do? And whom do they do these things for? And why are they doing that? What, What does it serve? How does it serve the people that they're doing that thing for? And basically this is very much linked to their purpose or their it's an aspect of themselves. And then I ask them, how might I develop this or create more capacity around this gift? Now, some people may have many that they can think of. Others I've had say, I have nothing. I am mean, one person who came to one of my workshops said that after that exercise, she went home and cried because she couldn't think of anything. She's like, I, I do everything for everybody else. And I used to be, have a self, When I was 16 and 17 and now I'm 40 years old and it's all been suppressed and it's under a big pile of laundry (laughs) and I don't and I don't know. Literally and figuratively. (laughs) Right exactly and so she made a commitment to herself that she was going to to start praying and be open for something anything and she actually you know started doing more uh, I can't remember exactly how it came upon her but she had been thinking about sort of meditation practices and there was somebody that was writing a book and asked her if she'd be willing to, to create, oh, oh, she, it was like all, all of the men were going to general conference to the men's session. And so she invited over a friend and did a meditation session in line with it. She was like, I just want to try it. And the women there loved it. And one of the women there was married to somebody who was writing a book and said, and she told him all about it then he wanted her to actually write the section of some potential meditations well anyway it's continued to blossom that book's actually being published she's been doing meditations what she came to one of our retreats which is a three-day and she did the meditations for the women who loved them i mean women were just going on and on about how beautiful and helpful these things were and she wrote me and just said you just have to know it started with me crying because i felt like there was nothing that i was dead inside and then just starting something and trying, and it's slowly evolved into something that's really meaningful to me, that feels specific to me, and um, that this is so much how we that, – that it's a creative process more than an uncovering process. Does that make sense? Like we uncover something. We might find out what a talent is that God has given us, but then it's very much about creating and developing and offering and taking risks with it that we forge a self
0: and there is no denying that we know that it is a godly thing to create that's right we that's just right. can't deny that that's right dr finlayson fife you're a rock star <laughs> you're a rock star i dare say that with all of the notes i've taken we will probably invite you back, <laughs> to back on this podcast sure. um just because of your wealth of information and I have no doubt after our listeners have listened that they are going to want more of you, more of you. So where can they find you at a million things
1: going on? (laughs) Let's hear it. Sure. Well, my website is just my name, which is finlayson-fife.com. And on my website there, I have online courses for members of the church, uh, how to talk to your kids about sex. And then I have a couples relationship course, couples sexuality course, and then a women's uh, sexuality course and i'm going to be doing one for men this fall as well so yeah there's been a lot of requests for that so i'll be doing that and then i have lots of podcasts on my website that are free that you can of course listen to i will be doing a workshop in salt lake on september 19th and 20th (laughs) i I could have pulled it up already (laughs) we just put it up to to sell and it's it's really filling up quickly so Hopefully it will still have some openings for people that want to go to it. There is, uh, I'm doing a couples retreat in Jackson Hole in October for, again, couples, members of the church. That is both a relationship, two days of relationship, and then three days, two and a half days really around sexuality. And so that's, we did that last year and it was a big success. And then for those who might be interested, we're doing a retreat. To France in May of 2020. It's 11 days of, you know, instruction from me while seeing all these beautiful, romantic, lovely places of Paris and and Provence and all this. So we did this in Italy last year and it was a huge hit. I mean, it was really remarkable to actually interact so much with these couples and to see so much transformation happen in the course of the trip. And so we're going to do it again. So, and they wait. can find out and sign up all through your website. Like That's if right. they want an email alert and those. That's kinds right. Of things. That's exactly. They can sign up for my email list if they want to be notified. And then there's an events page and also podcast. I'm sorry, like an events link and a podcast link, and uh, courses. So Fantastic. yeah. Well, a sincere thank you from
0: myself personally and certainly our listeners. I just think you're a warrior. Thank a you. Super brave warrior who has tackled topics that are tough and sadly awkward often. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that you have yes. been willing to to make your your life's work around things that are just changing lives and families. I just thank yeah. you so much for the incredible work you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guys, that was a great episode, right? Well, do you want a little bit more or a lot more? Well, we have it for you. Head over to thewomenwithfire.com slash bonus and you're going to find two bonus episodes that you can download that can literally get your soul on fire right now. So Sarah and I get asked to speak at places a lot and we have two most requested topics and we are tackling them and giving them right to your inbox. So Sarah's topic is Satan is at the Y, not at BYU, my friends. It is at the Y and she dives in uh, and tells you how to get over the questions. Then you can pop over and listen to Michelle talk about like the thing she's most fabulous at talking about and that is God is speaking, do you hear him? If you feel like revelation is sort of a tripping point for you, she has got some incredible ways that you can better hear the Lord in your everyday life. So these are bonus episodes. You can jump on right now at thewomenwithfire.com slash bonus. Download them right now and there is more for you to enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us at the Women with Fire podcast.